Welcome to the podcast series Talking Success, connecting the global fintech community. I'm Stacey Jafta, and today I'll be chatting with Mark Trenside, CEO of Zargo. Zargo harnesses the power of mobile, retail networks, and blockchain technology in playing a crucial role to transform the payment industry. They provide innovative money movement that changes the way money flows, what it costs, and how long it takes to reach a destination by bypassing traditional payment rails while remaining fully compliant and highly secure. Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for the invite. Of course. Of course. I'm excited about this conversation. How's your, your day, your week, your month been? This week's been good. I became a grandfather for the second time yesterday. Oh, congratulations. That's so exciting. Yeah, I know. It's not public knowledge yet. I've just ruined that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so not to worry. I'm sure by the time this goes out, it will be fine. Okay, I'll double check with you, but that's that that's such great news. Um, and and how's the the month been? How's everything going with Zago? Uh, the month goes really well. We um we had a, an exceptionally good April. Sorry, we've had a very good year to be honest. But uh, April was very very good for us. May May volatility of XRP or the crypto space has been good for us, and um, continue to look forward to the continued growth actually. Um, and the announcements that we've been making recently as well. So it's, it's all very healthy. And there's some other news coming, but we'll get to that another time. Yes, we'll keep an eye out for, for anything that's going to pop up on your side. But before we dive in any deeper, Mark, please just tell me more about your career journey and essentially what led you to become CEO of Zago. Well, it's a long story, unfortunately, as you know, as you've <laughs> we realized, I'm a gra- as we have a grandfather. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so it actually all started when I was about 14. I went to the library back in my school in the UK and picked up a book, a Ladybird book. I don't think it was any more than about 20 pages on, on Charles Babbage and what he did as the, the father of the computer, if you like, which I mm-hmm. think was in the 1830s. So it wasn't me. I didn't go to school then, but obviously it was a bit later than that. But anyway, um, that made me a programmer, basically. That was wow. the day I decided that um, that's what I was going to do. And I started coding at 16. Um, literally, um, whilst still at school, um, and all the way through, paid all the way through university, all the way through to the end, um, coding, and then on, on finishing education. If that's the right way of putting it, I, I became a, pro- a full-time programmer for the next twenty odd years, um, writing in COBOL and Assembler. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I was a good programmer. I sold I sold a lot, um, so it enabled me to achieve a lot. But I had a, a big ambition. I wanted my own business. It was mm-hmm. uh, a definitely an early thing. In my first, I, I bought into my first business when I was 24, 25. What drew you to the idea of of wanting to own your own business? To be honest, uh, getting out of some of the way my my parents had been. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my parents had been uh, my my father had been a, a woodworker. Okay. Always working for someone else, always, you know, making sure he clocked in and clocked out, et cetera. And that wasn't me. <laughs> that definitely wasn't me. Fair so enough. I wanted, I wanted my own destiny. I wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. So I became a programmer and, and then early in that job, actually, very strangely, I remembered the other day, I was sat in a pub with the MD and a potential and a client and the client said, what do you want to be? And I said, uh, I, I don't want to be, I just want, I just want his job. <laughs> And, and, and it sounds like a Braun advert for, for those that remember Braun adverts. I actually bought the company a few years later. No, no. <laughs> what a story. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so I was a programmer until I went to Russia in, in the late 90s um, to the Russian Stock Exchange, working with the different Russian banks. 
uh, and then got heavily involved with Deutsche Bank and, got, and came back from there and worked on mobile payments. I'd been involved with payments in my programming life most of that time. So when I came wow. back from, from Russia, I worked on a mobile payments platform. Um, it was probably a little early in 2000. Here we are in 2021. So, uh, but mobile payments, buying CDs, et cetera, using your mobile phone number as the, as the authentication. So it's, it's where we are now, but not with CDs, obviously. But um, <laughs> so uh, we moved on. But uh, yeah, so that was all over Europe and United States. So um, we did that for a good long time and then um, worked with Dell on their XML strategy, getting away from COBOL mainframes. Mm-hmm. And then um, decided, having left Russia, that I would start my own thing again. It was something I needed to do. So I started another consultancy um, in mobile payments. And I have to be honest, that's probably the biggest. <laughs> that didn't work well. It was a bit too early, I think, to be honest. <laughs> but I think we all need our failures in life. Definitely. We all need, definitely need those. So I learned a few lessons from that experience um, and then started um, – uh, getting involved more and more into mobile money and legislation. And that was when I, I first got involved with legislation, regulation around e-money and Europe in particular at the time when e-money was being de- defined uh, back in 2002. And so I've done a, quite a few number of e- quite a number of e-money licenses over my time. I think it's three or four. That is four. It's four. So, um, and then how did I get to Zago? So my wife announced that she was pregnant with twins. Um, and at that time I was CEO of Ucash, a company we'd started in the UK that was selling vouchers through mm-hmm. 400,000 400, points of sale across the world. Um, and then using them online at people at, at, at Skype, Disney gambling sites, um, some e-commerce sites. And it was growing very nicely, but uh, it was time to, to, to move to South Africa. So I reversed the trend and moved this way. So, uh, and I came here in 2010 and joined NASPAS and I started PayU. And uh, after four years with NASPAS, it was, it was time for me to, to move on. Created an identity platform, but still kept my nose in payments and sit on our RMB's risk board as well. And then moved on to uh, investing or starting or mm-hmm. founding, if you like, Zaga. So five years ago, we founded it. I was chairman for four of those years. And then last year when we received new investment, I was asked to, to be CEO as well. So I became CEO in September of last year. And what a journey it's been, I assume. Yeah, I, mean, I still, still think there's an inner programmer in there somewhere. <laughs> but he, he doesn't get out very often. Right? But, uh, I, but uh, there's still an inner programmer. Awesome. I have lots and lots of questions to ask. So I'm going to dive right in. But when you started at FreeServe, which is now acquired by Orange, there was a strategy in place for handling unhappy customers that just didn't make sense. You you led brainstorm sessions and, and ultimately came up with a new strategy. I found personally that brainstorm sessions can often be a waste of time. We're all going in circles. Nothing is really getting accomplished how do you coordinate your sessions and do you have any advice that essentially in turn concludes with something useful? The problem, let me just explain the problem so that probably helps. So um, when a customer received bad service back then, let's say they don't do that anymore, um, they would actually give you a voucher for a store. 
Now, that store had nothing to do with you as a business. So what you did was you were paying your customers who come that service to go and shop somewhere else. <laughs> so it never made a lot of sense to me that you would do that because you're actually pushing, pushing them away, if you like. Yeah. So um, we sat around for quite some time trying to work out you know, what was the right way to do this. Um, but you know, we were looking at things, uh, voucher technologies, issuing them a voucher. The problem with vouchers back then is that they could be used multiple times. So you, you might give someone a voucher and then someone would use it five times. Yeah? So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a great technology. So we worked, we worked on it for quite some time. And then we came across some technology that had been used in, in a gambling site. And typically gambling sites are, are very secure. So it's very, a, a very structured way of doing things where they would use, issue a voucher for cash and then use it in store. Now, it wasn't really geared towards open, uh, different currencies, different vendors, that type of thing at the time. So we actually sat there and worked out, how can we address this? How can we make this a multi-currency, uh, a multi-country, um, an expirable voucher if we needed to, a voucher that could be spent in part, not full, because that was very important as well, and definitely could be tracked to see whether it had been used on your website or your, your services. So um, eventually, we, that, that's, that's how we came across a technology in, in the marketplace. It wasn't being sold that way, but we talked to it. We, we went through the process with them. And then in the end, um, we actually implemented that. But um, we actually, I actually left and took that company that was doing something slightly different and created mm-hmm. you, and, and with a, three others created Ucash in, in the UK. And Ucash then used that technology to sell into... 400,000 points of sale and to become a, a billion pound a year business. Wow, wow. And and when you first joined Ucash, the business was making a loss and you were chatting to me about how you had to analyze the business and essentially find solutions to stop making a profit. Um, I, I speak to startups every single day that are in a similar position. Where would you recommend they start analyzing their business and, and what steps should they take from there? Well, it, it kind of goes without saying, but um, you know, all of us small businesses, when we, we, we're looking for anything that helps us get revenue in the front door. Yeah. So, um, and that's probably your most dangerous thing to do um, because really? you, you're, you're, that, you're that thinly spread rather than, you know, than, than what you should be. So focusing it down um, and like saying, right, what's my channels to market, for example? Is it, is it through, is it only direct? Is it indirect via other resellers? Can it be done via other organizations where you white label or do you not want to white label, but actually narrowing it down to what, what you're good at and what you can do with the mm-hmm. resources you, you generally have. And we all stretch that. Don't get me wrong, but um, that's what we did back then. We, we, we narrowed down and said, right, fine, we're going to do these direct channels. We're not going to sell indirectly in the beginning. And um, we're going to try and get more and more points of presence out in the marketplace. So we, that was kind of our strategy at that time, and we ended up with 400,000 points of presence, which was not a bad result. We were in five continents in 55, 56 countries by the time I left, um, and, and we were doing very well. Um, so, yeah, and you know, profitable, and ultimately that, that vehicle was then ultimately sold um, a few years later to, to, to a large European payments company. So you would recommend that a business first just looks at how they're using different people in the business, make sure that no one's spread out too thin and go from there? 
Yeah, I think it's just it's about focus. And if you start wandering off your focus and saying, "Oh, well, you know, whatever," if the phone rings, then it's a lead. It's it's probably an order. That's, you know, that's not reality. Mm. If, if you're talking, if you're in control yourself, you can turn the the leads. Like if you're consumer facing, providing you have something the customer wants, you can turn it much quicker. If you're talking to a bank or a retailer, you know, and your your lead time is twelve, eighteen months. Just be mm. realistic about that. Yeah. Um, yes, the volumes were going to be greater, hopefully, at the end. But um, you know, the number of times I've seen people say, "Well, the, the bank's going to go ahead within six weeks," it just doesn't happen. Record time, if that's the case. Yeah, exactly. So. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you. That, that's really, really helpful. Um, something that I'm really interested in, and it's a topic that we talk quite a bit on the podcast about, is investors, and we're usually construct this conversation in the direction of how to approach investors, how to pitch to investors. And you were chatting to me about how working with certain investors or choosing the wrong investor can be painful if it's done incorrectly. The truth is you get to pick your investor and it's not the other way around. What tips do you have for those that are in the process of maybe pitching to investors or choosing between a couple? Yeah, I, th- I think the most important thing when you pitch into an investor is to be honest. Mm. I mean, if you, you know, if you if you set, they've seen every story you can imagine before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, they know that you're not going to achieve you know ten thousand percent growth mm. year on year. They know you're not going to have a gross margin of ninety five percent. Yeah, and they know you're not going to be able to do it with five people. So, you know, so you've got to be honest with yourself on that. The the other thing is that you know I've had such varying uh, investors, are ones that invest money and you never hear about them until the, probably the AGM. Uh, mm. I've had others that ring you every single day, um, and then it becomes a bit heavy. And then I've had ones that you know really haven't got money because they've done well and been successful in their past and they come in and they they they, they just generally come in stir things up and mm-hmm. then leave and they've actually had no real practical experience for many 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 years and um that often falls felt but you know when you're a startup getting an investor is such a, a key part of your process typically of course and if um if and you and quite often it's desperation stages by then as well so um and i've been there um, so choosing your investor. You can't start your business unless you have money, but then if you don't, yeah, yeah, it's it's just kind of a cycle. So if you pick the wrong one, you will suffer for many years. Yeah. Um, and I've been on the receiving end of that. And, um, you know, I, I won't say I've been perfect, so the perfect investee, whatever, that's the right word. Um, but I've been an investor and an investee. So um, and I'm probably thinking I've, I've been involved in companies where we've raised certainly north of 100 million euros hundred wow. million pound dollars these days um i've also you know put in a few million myself so mm. it's it's not it's not um with other people so it's not without the risk um if you pick the wrong one and i, I kind of got a bit of an anecdote from last year last year we had a, a zargo had a choice of two right uh, okay. back in october and we had a choice of more money for less equity Mm. or less money for more equity so kind of the two camps mm. and we went round and round it and round it and round it and do you know what it came down to it came down to working with the people in the end mm. and we chose to go with the one before more equity and less money because it could be easier to work with and we thought they would have greater influence over the future yeah. of our business 
and it's proven to be the case. So we're glad we made we made the right decision. There, but don't always get, haven't always got it right. What are the factors you took into consideration when making that decision? What did that look like? What were the points that you saw that you were like, okay, yes, these are the kinds of people that I know would have a great impact in the business, would be great to work with. What does that look like and how can someone look out for that? Well, the first things they did were very easy. They actually said just like, okay, we, you need some tax advice. You, know, you need some accounting advice around outside the accountant you were using. Um, maybe you should talk to these company secretarial functions. You're a small company to take it off you so you can do, you know, leave it away. So they gave us some great ways of actually saving time so we could concentrate on our own business. So that mm-hmm. was one which was fairly early on. And I think that was a good thing. Uh, two, they started to introduce us even before we'd signed the deal. Wow. So they, they actually started that process. So we, we probably spoke, and they probably introduced us, there's been six months now, you know, probably four or five different new businesses. And as a byproduct, I'd like to say we got it on merit, but I'm sure behind the scenes that they were a little bit influential in what's been going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, awesome. That's great advice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And then something that I'm really interested in learning more about, and I don't even know where to start because digital currencies, cryptocurrency, blockchain is something that's really, really new to me. But I'm aware that Zago believes that you shouldn't be scared of regulation, but rather embrace it. And you go about it in a very unique way. How does Zago use this philosophy? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. And it's, and it's one that's a bit in the crypto space, certainly has been you know, trying to avoid as much of the legacy of the past. Um, but we, we believe, you know, try and reduce it, but at the same time, embrace it. So, you know, the regulators aren't going away and the banks aren't going away <laughs> and we're in that space. So as, as much as people say, well, you know, it's the end of paper money. Hopefully one day we'll see that. It's the end of banks. It's not the mm. end of bank banks. And banks have evolved for 400 years, they're 500 years then. <laughs> they're not going to stop evolving. Yeah. So, um, I, so embrace that. So we actually actively sought out the regulators here in South Africa, actively said, we want to be part of your process so that when the regulation when when the regulation does get applied, and there will be regulation on crypto, let's just be honest, it will happen. Mm. We're part of the process of education on both sides. We're part of the deliverable. Can it be delivered in the crypto space? And and if it can be delivered, can it be delivered in a way that still enables the, the fintechs of this world to, 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 to grow and expand and, and benefit from it? And at the same time, don't say, well, the, you know, the banks aren't going to be part. The banks will always be part of the, the process. They will find a way if there isn't already a way. So we've done that. Um, and as, as we're going out further and further into Africa, we're now starting to talk to other countries in Africa's actual uh, governmental ministerial level about what we're doing here. Um, so it's, it looks like it's a good practice. Um, from going back to my UCash days, going back a few years, we got the e-money license at the beginning. We, when we got the e-money license, we were maybe doing £200,000 a year. Wow. Two, two years later, we were doing a billion pounds a year. Incredible, incredible. <laughs> and I am absolutely <laughs> convinced it was regulation. Why? Because when you're unregulated, you're going after 3 to 5% of the marketplace. When you're regulated, mm. other than the ones you don't want to go after, you can go after 100% of the market. Yes. So it's an important thing to do in our mind. And we're not going to stop. We're going to keep pushing. That's incredible. Mark, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, this was such a such an interesting conversation. I've learned so much from, from this discussion. So thank you again. 
Thanks, Stacey. Appreciate it. Anytime. Awesome. Where's the best place for listeners to reach you personally and, and Zargo as well? On LinkedIn and Zargo Technologies. On Telegram, you can get me on my, my, through my name. And Facebook at Zargo, at Zargo Tech. Awesome. Thanks again, Mark. Thank you, Stacey. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Talking Success, Connecting the Global Fintech Community. Feel free to follow us on LinkedIn at Talent in the Cloud. And if you're interested in exec talent, expanding your team, or you yourself are looking for a new, exciting change in your career, check out our website, talentinthecloud.io.